Welcome to Interviews with Innocence, a podcast about spirituality, consciousness, and exploring the wisdom our children bring into this world. I believe that our very young children are our greatest teachers. After all, they're the masters of living in the present moment, bubbling in unconditional love, enjoying the messiness of life, and curious about the universe in all its dimensions. The pure essence that young children exhibit lives within all of us. My hope is that these interviews will help us discover, embrace, and connect with the sacred core of childhood that resides within each of our hearts. I am your host, Marla Hughes. Today, I have Kimberly Clark Sharp on the show. I met Kimberly at one of the IONS um, conferences a few years ago, and I was just so, so attracted to her, her personality and just her light that just, oh my gosh, it just glows within. Um, Kim is a licensed independent clinical social worker. She's the author of After the Light, which we're going to be talking about today. She's the founder of the Seattle International Association of Near-Death Studies, the world's oldest support group for near-death experiencers. And I should say that Kim had a a near-death experience herself when she was a, a young girl, so she'll be talking about that. In 1987, she was named one of the 40 most influential people under the age of 40 in the Pacific Northwest for her work in the field of death and dying. She's the founder of the Department of Social Work at the world's first bone marrow transplant center and pioneer in the field of critical care social work. She taught terminal illness seminars in the School of Medicine at the University of Washington, where she was also a clinical assistant professor in the School of Social Work. Welcome to the program, Kim. Well, that was a lot of stuff. Sorry, we're out of time. Thank you for having me. (laughs) Bye. That was, let's let's just throw on a video. (laughs) So Kim, just tell us briefly about how you started on this journey, about your NTE and um, yeah, go Well, um, my near-death experience happened in uh, the state of Kansas in 1970. I was with my, excuse me, my throat. I was with my dad, so I really should share his perspective because I don't remember anything in what I call topside, which is the consensual reality with which we and I, you and I are now speaking. And um, I was in perfect health. Uh, we exited the building and I collapsed. And you were how old? I was 22 and three days. Okay. But again, Kansas. Maturationally, I was not there. I lived in a bubble in every possible way. It was 1950, not 1970, where I lived at that time in my family, my whole reality. Um, So uh, I also hated change, which becomes relevant. And uh, I hated change so much, I planned to marry uh, Bob Clark met him in the seventh grade. I was Kim Clark, he was Bob Clark. Hey, what a good reason to get married. Didn't have to change a monogram on the towels. There's worse ways to pick a mate. So um, I collapsed 
now jumping ahead, I did pull my medical records in writing after the light and my admitting um, body temperature was 86, which is a nice pool temperature, but not what our, it's cold for our bodies. And um, the words on my chart said, uh, primary cause for collapse unknown, possibly cardiac, maybe a faint, uh, but all, all respiratory problems were due to the snafu with the ventilator. And I read that and went, I'm a snafu? So here's how the snafu happened. I collapsed into and through my dad's arms. A uniformed nurse happened to be passing the building. She trotted over, determined I didn't have a pulse, wasn't breathing. It was just before 911. So a volunteer fire department was called from Shawnee Mission, where my body at the time was in repose. And then um, an ambulance was called from Kansas City, Missouri, because that was the closest trauma center. So the volunteer fire department arrived first. <clears throat> and they also determined I wasn't breathing and didn't have a pulse. They had a brand new portable ventilator. They removed it from packaging. Uh, they were looking at one end of the tube or another. My dad said they looked really confused. And, you know, to be honest, they were probably farmers. I mean, you know, these were volunteers. No one, my dad, not, not anyone, even remotely blamed them for messing things up. They were doing their best and God bless them. Um, but this ventilator, uh, the portable ventilator had two features, one to uh, extract items blocking the airway, which is why we tell our children, don't run with candy. And then uh, another to, of course, push the air in. It was on backwards. So it sucked out whatever oxygen was in my body. And I would like to insert a joke here since I just said those words, I thought of a joke. I guess I had the life sucked out of me. I mean, <laughs> usually I use a different word. <laughs> but anywho, uh, that's what happened. Uh, a man came from the back of now, I guess fairly good sized crowd. I was street theater or something. And um, he pushed everyone aside, swearing a lot and did what we now call citizen CPR, but he did mouth to mouth and chest compressions. And then, uh, but nobody could get anything. Uh, an ambulance arrived finally, and my body was thrown to the back. My dad jumped in, off we go to St. Luke's Medical Center. These are place names, I have no secrets. Uh, things went crummy in the emergency room, but <clears throat> I hate to give away the ending of a good book, but she lived, but <laughs> and here she and is. here she is. So, hey, I read the book anyway. So um, I have no memory of that stuff. What I remember is hearing a woman's voice to my left saying, "I'm not getting a pulse. I'm not getting a pulse." And I turned to her with a bit of annoyance, to be honest, and said, "I thought out loud. Of course, you're getting a pulse. Otherwise, I wouldn't be speaking." This is kind of like elementary, my dear. She ignored me, she kept ignoring me. So I thought, well, heck, I'm, I'm out of here. And uh, I found myself in a different environment. It was warm and cushy and foggy. Uh, I liked it, it was comfortable. I knew I wasn't alone, but I couldn't see who I was with because of the dang fog. Um, and I felt like I was waiting for something with the same 
degree of uh, confidence that I would be at the gate of an airport, you know, waiting to board. I mean, the plane is here, the other passengers have gotten off, they're about to call my section of the plane, usually the farthest back. And uh, there you go, I, it was fine. And then whatever I was waiting for did show up and it was in the form of a light and it exploded under me. It blasted away everything that I might've seen including the fog and who was in it, everything. And it spread out as if I had eyes. I mean, come think of it. My eyeballs were in my body. So what am I doing seeing anything? Hmm. Hmm. Uh, remind me to pursue that question. How do we see things when we're not in our bodies? That's a good question. But anyway, uh, I could see just fine, thank you. And this light spread out in all directions. And at the same time, it was layering on itself, but endlessly. And somehow I just knew I was seeing eternity and that it wasn't just time as we know it in a linear fashion. I knew that those layers were dimensions and they were also endless, but I've never found the words to convey fully what I completely understood on the other side. Also, I've never found words to describe the light. It was love, it was personal and yet universal. If I had been in body, I would have been blown to smithereens. It was that intense. Um, I would say God, but that's just three little letters in English that you know means nothing. You can say anything you want, but I did find words and I said, homey home. And wow. yeah, and that's really how I felt, Marla. I was, it was homey home. I learned later in sharing this with my parents that homey home is what I used to say when we were away from the house, but pulling into the neighborhood and from the back of the car, you know, see it, I can see, you know, neighborhood landmarks and I'd go homey home, homey home. Well, wow. I was first born. So it was one of those gitchy goo moments, you know, but I, I was probably what two, I have no memory of that. But yeah, that's what I said. And I just felt so loved. And uh, I got to ask questions. The communication was perfect, but the best way I can describe it is that it was in a form of math and music. And I have since way learned, I mean, you know, brain sciences, moved along quite a bit since 1970. As it turns out that that point in our brain that identifies math and music is on the same spot until we're about 10 years old. So now conventional wisdom is uh, expose your children or grandchildren to music before age 10, it will help their math skills. So I have no skills though in math or music. I didn't get that exposure. I can't subtract, add, multiply or divide can't play an instrument. And if people are singing, I'm asked to lip sync. It's that bad. <laughs> and yet here I am in this perfect communication. Um, it was wonderful. And I, I asked questions any fool would ask, you know, the creator, like, well, why are we born? And it was basically you begged to, you know, and, and probably my sense is that we begged for a certain location, heritage, parents, Mm -hmm. astrological sign for all I know. I mean, it, this was a selection process 
for the development of our souls, which I way learned were eternal. And uh, I asked about, you know, suffering, something I'd never experienced, but I thought I'd ask. And, and basically, you know, was told that that's the way back to God, that if we're given everything we want all the time, there would be no growth. Now, I still don't understand suffering at all, but it's not my game plan, I guess. I don't know. So then I heard the worst thing possible, and that's that I, I was going to go back. So I argued, again, what any fool would do. It was yes, no, yes, no, but I guess he lost. And I wound up back, but off to my body. I had flunked the uh, parallel parking part in that DMV. Right. And uh, I looked at my physical body and I thought, oh my, I mean, here I just had this incredible sacred experience. And all I could think of was a joke. And I thought, huh, I can't even park myself because it was about the same distance. And by the way, I still can't parallel park. So I have a lot of things I can't do. They're stacking up. Um, see, math, music, spatial experiences. Um, and I thought, it didn't scare me, but I just thought, what the heck? And then I saw. Did you tell? Did you tell anybody um, about your experience when, you know, when you? I mean, afterwards. Yes, no, no, I yes. cried a lot. <laughs> I cried. There's not a lot of words. I cried and cried and cried. It was. Uh, well, I'll get to that in a moment if you don't mind. Because sure. uh, I'm still sure. not back, as it turns out. Um, oh, great! The Good Samaritan is my dad. My dad always described him who bent over me and did CPR. Um, once I saw this man that I didn't recognize bend over me and as soon as his mouth touched mine, then um, I, I, I came back into my body, but through him and going through him, I knew everything about the guy. Now I'm married to a paramedic and he doesn't like hearing this exactly, but that's the way it happened. And then, uh, but then I was dark, it was dark and it was cold and, I was miserable and that was probably when my body temperature was 86. It was clammy. Oh, Marla, it was horrible. So I felt like I was just running around in my body going, homey home, 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 I wanna go homey home. So God, for lack of a better word, showed up again. And on my right was like this portal or window thing that opened and then it was beautiful. And I was just told that was my heaven. And it was like meadows of grass and off in the distance, small white fencing and some small trees or whatever. And, but it wasn't earthly. Uh, for one, the grass was not green. It was green. And the sky was not blue. It was blue. And I was aware of the consciousness of every single blade of grass. And there were like countless, millions who knew. It, everything was so alive and I was happy. And I was told if I went through that window, though, that was my border and I wouldn't be back. So it was like, okay, see ya. And then a flash showed um, to my left. And there was a place I was told that I would live if I chose to live. And all I knew was that it was where mountains met water. So it sure wasn't Kansas. And then I could care less. I want to go to this meadow. Tell me home. Tell me home. Yeah, no no question about it. There was another flash. And um, I saw like a gallery of people 
total strangers, but they had captions. And it was like, you know, best friend, next door neighbor, and mundane, nobody famous, no celebrities, no, you know, they were just people. But I was told I would be, you know, heavily interacting with them should I choose to live. No, I didn't choose to live. Off I go to homey home. And it was the third flash. And I saw myself being of service to others. And I said, cool. And I was back. So, you know, who knew that God was a hippie? You know, cool, I guess, was <laughs> a cool man, which was like an ascent. No, I was just making the remark. But I was back. And um, everything was different. And you asked, did I tell? I, I couldn't. I'm just all emotion. But I had to find where mountains, not water. I had to. So I recovered, bought a car, the green weenie, because uh, it was a Volkswagen square back. And I had a hamster named Toto. And I put Toto in the front seat of this car in a birdcage. And off we went to find something. And I mentioned earlier, I hated change. I mean, I feared change. I hated change. Well, we were on our way and approaching the I-70 interstate, which is the big vein that goes through the middle of the country, east and west. And at the time, it was a tollway. So I began to cry. I was terrified. And I cried and cried. And I out loud, I said, you know, I hate change. I don't want change. I hate change. I don't want to do this. I hate change. Really blubbering. And approaching the toll booth, there's this big white sign with big black letters that it said, change needed. I thought, oh, funny. Oh, 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 oh. <laughs> and I found that God has a tremendous sense of humor. And, and then I said, oh, I don't suppose you can bring me a Kleenex because it was that mucus kind of cry. And uh, between Toto and me, I looked down. I'm sure my mother put this there, but I hadn't noticed it. There was a white box, black letters, and it said, Kimberly Clark Kleenex. Well, that was my name, Kimberly Clark. So like God grabbed 18,000 tissues and blew my nose and wiped my eyes. I went, oh, funny, funny. And then outside of, so I left Kansas. Outside of Hayes, Kansas had a tornado. Toto and I took refuge overnight. And we wound up ultimately in Seattle, which then is now is called the Emerald City. So ta-da, I'm Dorothy. If Dorothy chose not to leave Oz. So that's my story, Marla. Wow, that is, so what were, what would you say were the most profound things? I mean, I know all of it was, but that you came back with the knowledge. Whew. Definitely that we are all loved, even the stinkiest among us. And we are too loved, even the stinkiest among us. In fact, not only the stinkiest among us, but the harder it is to love somebody, the more we're measuring up. Uh, okay. I, I fail on that often. Someone just took my parking place and I had my blinker on. I don't love them at all. But so I'm, you know, I'm human, go figure. Um, yes, yes. Being of service, helping others is the big, that's the golden ticket. And did your friends and family members, did they notice a change in you? Yes, and still do. Um, yeah. All the way from crazy to hellbound, depending on which family member you talk to. But yeah, yeah. there was, and, and Raymond Moody had, there was no coinage of the term near death experiences. Right. It was as if, to be honest, my life was a jigsaw puzzle. 
and all the pieces fit. And someone came along and threw all the pieces in the air and they landed really nilly. And it was my job to piece them together. And that took about seven years. And can I share another story? Of course you can. Thank you. So I became a social worker, got my master's degree. I'm still not, I haven't processed the experience, haven't met anyone. So by now with a master in social work, I can self-diagnose. And I decided I was crazy because I was seeing what we call uh -huh. angels. And I was seeing dead people like my patients. I mean, there's a whole nother broadcast, by the way. I was having visions right and left. And it was like having out of body experiences. It just felt nuts because I had no grounding. Then um, in April of 1977, one of my patients named Maria, Hispanic, mainly Spanish speaking, came to Seattle for the first time. By now I'm working at Harborview Medical Center, which is the urban branch of the University of Washington uh, School of Medicine and all medical facilities. She was admitted in the night. I worked days, got to work, was immediately called in to assist because she needed a translator and money and family contact and all that. So uh, I had un poco espanol and she had even less English, but I never got along. I knew how to call the translator. Um, one day I was in the chart room where also the monitors were and somebody was flatlining. Trauma happened like that though at Harborview all the time. Speaking of trauma, then and now, I say that again about the Emerald City and also about Harborview. It serves a landmass of one fourth of the United States. So we're talking about a lot of death and dying. I was well steeped in that whole end of life process um, and wondering why I was so darn good at it. You know, I, I wasn't connecting my near death experience to my ability to be so effective with patients. And by effective, I mean calm, comforting, uh, assuring. There was just something I had, it was a knack that I became really well known for. Did you see experience when they had, you know, the hospice workers I've, I've talked with, um, you know, we know there's deathbed visions and past relatives come to visit to prepare for the journey. And since your intuition and visions had opened up so much from your NDE, did you experience a lot of that too? Nope, none of that. These people dropped dead. There was right. no going gently into that dark night. They were breathing and then they weren't breathing. Right, yeah, right. It, it just, uh, it was intensive care and coronary care. No prep, Got it. Got no it. prep. I will say though, and I'm getting off track of where I was headed, but I'm gonna interrupt myself and tell you that once, and I told you I could see things, including what, I don't know what else to call them, but angels, uh, uh, who knows, these things, they're invisibilities. Uh, I don't want to, ascribe certain religion or anything to any of my experiences or spiritual. But there was a fellow um, on the coronary care unit named Saul, who was a cardiologist himself and the resident uh, on the floor at that time was his nephew. And Saul went into ventricular fibrillation, which is sudden death. Nephew came over with the paddles and was zapping and zapping and zapping poor Paul's, poor Saul's body. and no one had the nerve to go up and say, stop, you know, he's gone. And I was distracted by something over my shoulder. 
and oh, here goes my credibility, but here you go. I saw like a flying wedge of geese, like V-shaped, or what all intents and purposes would be angels coming down from beyond. And it was as if my vision went through all the many floors of Harborview Medical Center. And I could see them coming down and they were coming for Saul. And they reached his body and I could see his spirit physically being lifted from his body and carried away. And I knew, and I went up to the resident. It was a social worker who did that and gently said, he's gone. He's gone. So the resuscitation effort stopped. So that's something about what you're referring to, but uh, it, that's so unusual. But anyway, Maria, this woman, um, she went into cardiac arrest. I watched her resuscitation. Uh, it was pretty easy. I left the area or the floor when she was um, breathing on her own, just unconscious. But then later in the day, I was called up to the coronary care unit because Maria was awake, very agitated, and her nurse thought that she would go back into cardiac arrest. So find the translator, find out what's wrong with her. Couldn't find the translator anywhere. So in I went and um, yeah, I'll tell you in my terms, not hers, because we'd be here all day. But she said first she saw herself uh, from the perspective of a corner of the ceiling looking down. And she could see who was in the room, told me she was correct. What machinery was being used, told me she was correct. But there was also a lot of paper being kicked under the bed. That was nothing she had been educated in. Back then, these were big electrocardiogram machines that spewed wide paper, and they were indeed kicked under the bed until the patient recovered or died. Torn off the machine, studied by the physicians later. That was not part of her, no one's, no one's education. In case you die, I mean, uh, no. Then she said like that, snap of her fingers, without a sense of traveling from point A to point B, she found herself outside of her window, looking down on the emergency room entrance. She could see the one-way driveway, the automatic doors. And again, I thought, well, she was really talking to the best and worst person possible. Best because, well, I'd had a near-death experience, but worst, I didn't believe that I was sane. So she had to be crazy too. So I thought, oh, well, someone pushed her bed over by the window to clean or something. She, you know, her window was above the emergency room entrance. Very wrong thinking on my part. For one, this woman was hooked to so many devices. No one would move. You know, hold your breath while I unplug your ventilator. I mean, and no one would move someone to clean. Also, above every emergency room entrance, there's a roof because weather happens and lights need to shine at night on and on. She couldn't see from her window any of what she described, but I was still discounting her. And then she said again, just like that, she found herself in another part of the hospital um, and she was looking eyeball to shoelace with a dark blue, large tennis shoe. And the reason she was agitated is because she wanted someone to get the shoe, looking at me levelly, <laughs> like, and I'm looking out the window, going, uh, "Me." <laughs> so um, that's why she was agitated. She wasn't upset at all. She just wanted someone to get the shoe. She's really excited. 
She thought it was three or four stories above the ground, but she had no point of orientation. So she didn't know where to look. So I tried to walk around the building and I, I didn't see anything, but the ledges were so wide. I, I knew I couldn't see anything anyway. So um, I went inside, started on the third floor, you know, luck oh the Kim. I started on the opposite side where I wish I had started, but uh, you know, I was going, looking through room to room to room. The windows went down almost to the floor, so I didn't have to bother anybody unless there was a cart blocking the window. And these carts were metal and had two shelves and they were stacked with supplies. And, and then I'd have to go in and apologize for the disruption. But these were all coronary care patients. They were all my patients that had already gotten out of ICU. So I was fine. And then I got to the middle of the third floor on the west side of the building and looked down because there indeed had been a cart in front of the window and there was the shoe. And she had said, oh, and there's a white shoelace that goes under the heel. You know, as if I was gonna get confused with any other shoe out on the ledge. I mean, like, really? Details? Now, one has to ask, what is a shoe doing on a ledge? I mean, what the heck? I, I have no idea how it happened, of course, but now that I'm sharing this story, Listeners will start noticing how many shoes, single shoes there are on the side of the highway, on the road, just there. It, how does someone lose a shoe? I don't get it. Anyway, that is when I found words. All those jigsaw puzzle pieces fell into place and I bonked my head. I was so weak, I thought I was gonna pass out, but I bonked my forehead against the glass and out loud I said, this happened to me. And I remember the moment of, where my breath moment just, just kind of fogged up the glass a bit. And it was my watershed moment. So I grabbed the shoe and went back down to coronary care. She was on two north. I found the shoe on three west. And because of the slope of the land, it was indeed four full stories above the ground. So that, <laughs> that shoe became the shroud of Turin of Harborview. Um, you know, everyone came to see it. And then when she discharged, she's in the hospital for three weeks, she gave me the shoe. And it's not like she was a ship passing in the night. She, you know, came back into town for outpatient cardiology. I followed her for three years of my life. Um, and then I went on a leave of absence to backpack around Europe. And one of my graduate students took my caseload and she never came back. We never saw her again. And I, I have no idea what happened to her. Uh, so people say, well, show me the shoe and I'll believe. And I say, clean out my garage and you can have the shoe. It's out there somewhere. And this is like 900 square feet of unmarked boxes. No one has taken me up. But we also know if I produce a shoe, I could go to Nordstrom and get a shoe. I mean, oh, and this is a shoe. And they say, well, yeah, I want to meet Maria or I want to talk to the doctor. I can, that didn't happen uh, once an interviewer talked to the attending physician and the doc said, I'm sorry, Kim, I'm never going to do that again because of the skeptical responses. So as, as I always say, be careful. Of course, you know, you're spreading your beautiful message, but be careful who you talk with because people love to muddy the waters and, and it, it was real. I think this is a great time to wrap it up. And Kimberly will be back next week to continue her fascinating story. I hope you can join us.
Thank you so much for listening in today. If you want to learn more about the show, you can find us at interviewswithinnocence.com and on Facebook or Instagram at interviewswithinnocence. Please write me a message. Tell me what you liked and let me know what else you would like to hear. I would love to hear from you. And if you liked what you heard, please leave us an iTunes rating and review. It helps other listeners find the show. Thank you. Thank you.